0: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk, fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
1: It's Monday, September 27th, 2021. A brand new week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, if you're not familiar with my work. On the TV side, I'll be joining Special Report this evening, the panel with Brett Bayer and Company. That's in the 6 p.m. Eastern hour on FNC. Here on radio, we are with you from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. And our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free if you miss any of the live show. We recommend listening as we air. But the podcast, a popular and growing option as well. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the roadmap today. Brian Riedel is going to join us later this hour. And we are going to unpack what is truly a breathtaking new talking point from the White House. Joe Biden said it, and now the media is just adopting it. Many of them just swallowing it whole. Oh, yes. Oh, how interesting. Let's say this all together, which is the Democrat spending package. $3.5 $3.5 trillion, the partisan reconciliation bill, whatever the number is going to end up being. Biden is saying it costs zero dollars, actually, because it'll be paid for. Spoiler alert, it will not be fully paid for. It will be filled with gimmicks and nonsense. And even if you want to make the argument that it's all paid for, that does not mean that it's free. They're saying it costs nothing. It costs zero dollars. If you show up and buy a car for 30 grand and you pay in cash, that car did not cost you zero dollars. That car cost you $30,000. And you no longer have those $30,000 for other things, should you wish to spend it elsewhere. But the line from the White House, and I'm not even exaggerating, is. This costs nothing. There is no price to $3.5 trillion in taxing and spending that they are planning. We will fact check the president and a bunch of these media hacks with Brian Riedel. Byron York will also be here in the next hour to react to this next issue that we're going to open with in our opening monologue, plus a few other things. I was on the panel yesterday with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, one of his featured guests was Alejandro Mayorkas, DHS secretary. And he said some very interesting things about the border. We have the audio. Stay tuned in just a moment for that. We'll get further reaction from Byron. And then I'm very excited. Our final hour today, we will welcome in Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who ran the FDA under President Trump. He's got a new book out called Uncontrolled Spread. It's about the pandemic and COVID-19. He is one of the people that I trust the most, on these issues, even though I don't agree with him on every single thing, always, I think he's a serious adult in the room who's realistic, unlike some other people, some other famous doctors. Let's not name names. You can maybe think of someone, but Dr. Gottlieb will be here in our final hour. Fox News Alert as we begin the show, let's bring you stats coronavirus cases. Just shy of 43 million, that's confirmed throughout the entire pandemic in this country. The real number is a lot higher. The good news is week over week, so from two weeks ago, cases in the U.S. now down 18%. So the major wave in southern states is seriously receding, which is great. The death toll, tragically, is up. 688,178 Americans have died from COVID, and that number is actually up. ...compared to two weeks ago, but that's because it's a lagging indicator, which is something we've discussed here a number of times. The Dow is currently in the green, up 110 points, currently trading at 34,907. We'll keep a beat on that with the closing bell coming up in just about 50 minutes. So as I mentioned, Secretary Mayorkas stopped by Fox News Sunday. He was in studio with Chris Wallace... And there were a few exchanges because I was sitting there, not in studio. I was off in one of the sort of smaller studios getting ready for the panel. But I was watching with great interest, and I was just blown away by some of the answers that we got from the secretary. For example, let's do a flashback before we get to this Fox News Sunday exchange. Just last week, days ago, the Homeland Security secretary came out and he said – do not come here. Just a very strong warning to illegal immigrants. See? Look, the the border's secure. The border's close. Don't come here. It's not going to succeed. Here's what it sounded like. This was the DHS secretary days ago, cut 35.
2: If you come to the United States illegally, you will be returned. Your journey will not succeed, and you will be endangering your life and your family's lives. This administration is committed to developing safe, orderly, and humane pathways for migration. But this is not the way to do it.
1: Now, that's the rhetoric. Those are the words that were said. How about the actions? We knew that some number of those Haitian illegal immigrants in Del Rio, Texas, were just being released into the United States pending a court date down the line. We read that it was happening on a vast scale. That was reported by the Associated Press. We didn't really have the numbers because they didn't want to tell us the numbers. Well, Wallace drilled down on this with the secretary, and we finally got some numbers. Listen to cut nine. Of the 17,400
3: that weren't deported back or didn't return on their own to mexico how many of them either ha- well first how many have been released into the u.s
2: uh they're released on conditions yes. and, and uh, approximately i think it's about ten thousand or so twelve thousand have been released yes and of the five thousand that are still in process we will uh make determinations whether they will be uh returned uh to uh haiti uh based on our public health and public interest Uh, authorities. So are we talking about a total of 12,000 or could it be even higher? It could uh, it could be even higher. The number that are returned could be even higher. What we do is we follow the law as Congress has passed it.
1: It's it's just breathtaking. And this is just a microcosm of the larger problem, right? We're getting hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border illegally every month. Tens of thousands of gotaways. This is one crisis within the crisis, the Del Rio-Haiti situation. And of those, what, 20, 25,000 people who arrived there, and there are reports, by the way, that there are now tens of thousands more Haitian nationals coming up through Mexico to come to the U.S. border. And, of course, why wouldn't they? Of that group, at least he said 10,000 at first. Then he was like "Eh, 12,000. So he just jumped By 2000 in one breath. And he admits that that number could grow. They have been released into the United States. With instructions to appear before a judge down the line at some point. Now, I will just add briefly before we get to whether that is actually enforcement. Of course, it's not. Of course, it's not. But Chris Wallace, elsewhere in the interview, asked Mayorkas about how many of these people released in the United States were tested for COVID. And the answer was effectively zero. They are not doing universal testing. Right. So this administration is requiring U.S. citizens, requiring U.S. citizens to prove that they're vaccinated just to be able to work, to show up for work. And there's a lot of places where you have to show your vaccine card to get into a restaurant or do something that you want to do. And I'm very pro vaccine, extremely pro vaccine. But here are U.S. citizens being mandated by the federal government in some cases, many cases on vaccines. They are not, of course, requiring vaccinations for illegal immigrants showing up. They aren't even testing them. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a public health emergency, and that's their standard for illegal immigrants versus U.S. citizens. And I think people are fully justified in being disgusted by these standards, however you want to describe these standards from Team Biden. But let's talk about enforcement. Chris Wallace, for example, asked a question that we teased a bit here on the radio with Chris on Friday. He put it, to Secretary Mayorkas and cut 14, why not build dot, dot, dot? Listen.
3: Why did you allow them in the country in the first place? Why didn't you build, forgive me, a wall or a fence to stop them from walking in this flood of people coming
2: across the dam? It looks like a highway that allows them to cross the Rio Grande. It is this pol- the policy of this administration. Uh, we do not agree with the building of the wall.
1: Oh, well, OK. They don't like the wall. The wall might work, but they're against it because that's not the policy or the values or whatever of the administration. I'm trying to figure out what form of enforcement they actually support. The answer seems to be very few. The open borders crowd is offended by all enforcement. And I don't know what to call this. They walk across this dam By the thousands, they hang out in the country, they claim asylum, and that is bogus for almost all of them. I have some more details on that in a second. And thousands of them are simply released into the country. That is not border enforcement. That is tantamount to open borders, no matter what they want to call it, no matter how they want to spin it. Then there was this exchange, too, that I think is very important and instructive when it comes to the court dates, and there are a few things that caught my attention. We'll unpack them as we go. Listen to Cut 12. Just as a matter of reality, won't many
3: of those thousands of people end up settling here in the United States, some of them permanently?
2: Chris, we have uh, enforcement guidelines in place that provide that individuals who are recent border crossers, who do not uh, show up for their hearings, are enforcement priorities and will be removed and that is one of our do you
3: remove all of them or do some of them disappear into the country
2: well we it is uh, our intention to remove them that is what Uh. our policies are and we deploy our enforcement resources according to certain priorities to ensure the safety and security of the american people but sir there are more than 11 million
3: people in this country illegally clearly despite your best efforts
2: Millions of people end up in this country and don't just disappear. Chris, 11 million people in this country without lawful presence is a compelling reason why there is unanimity about the fact that our immigration system is broken.
1: Okay, I want you to pay attention to what just happened here. So Chris Wallace asks the obvious question. A lot of people just want to live here. They just want to come here and live. So, aren't we just letting them in? Aren't we allowing that to happen? Because Wallace also cited some DOJ statistics that showed nearly half of all illegal immigrants who are given a notice to appear, nearly half of them don't show up for court. So, that's an awful lot of people who are supposed to do something who don't, which is not surprising because they're violating our sovereignty in the first place. They want to just live here. Why would they risk? Getting deported, why would they make it easier to be removed? They just sort of slip into the country and melt into our society and hope that they won't be caught or deported. And the Biden team has announced we're actually going to be catching and deporting even fewer of them than ever. Even if you commit additional crimes and are convicted of additional crimes, we're still not going to be doing as much deporting. They've announced this. So, of course, people are getting the message. So Mayorkas here, I think this is what's so interesting, the instant, the instant, I would say, contradiction that he offers up. Wallace says, well, won't people just escape into the country and not show up? And Mayorkas says, well, we have guidelines, we have policies, and uh, if they don't show up for their hearings, uh, we'll find them and they will be removed. And Wallace says, well, yeah, but some of them don't just disappear, right? They, they don't show up. He says, well, our intention is to remove them. That's our policies. We deploy our enforcement, and we're going to do that. And then Wallace says, yeah, okay, that's a nice story to tell, which is basically, well, trust the system. All right, yes, we're going to put people out into the country. In this case, what, 12,000 of them with little pieces of paper. You've got to show up to your ICE hearing or whatever down the line. About half of them probably won't based on previous statistics. What about those people And the DHS secretary is effectively arguing you've got to trust the system in the process. We've got our policies in place. And if they don't abide by them, then we're going to go get them. And then Wallace says, well, but hang on. We've got millions of illegal immigrants here, a lot of whom have done exactly this playbook, shown up in the country. They don't then appear when they're supposed to, and they're just here quasi permanently or permanently. What about them? And Myerka says, well, that's just further proof that our system is broken. Right, So the first part of his answer is we've got to trust the system. We're releasing thousands of them into the country, but under the system, they'll show up and we'll adjudicate their claims. And then when there's even just the slightest pushback on that, he goes from trust the system to, oh, well, of course, the system is broken. It is absolutely incoherent. I have a few more thoughts on this and details that you need to know, and we will delve into that as soon as we come back from this short break. Happy Monday, a brand new week. The
4: Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
0: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
4: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services
0: It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
5: How can DHS claim to have an independent investigation into these Border Patrol agents when the president says, quote, those people will pay, and you say the images
2: horrified us? Uh, Jake... um uh, I think uh, it's quite clear that what the images suggest horrified the American public. Uh, that is quite different than learning what actually happened, determining the facts. Nah, nah.
1: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was Mayorkas on another network on CNN. Fair question from Jake Tapper. Is oh, they're having an investigation into the horseback Whippers, remember that whole lie that we spent an entire week on, embraced by the president and the vice president. Tapper asks, well, if you're going to say from the presidency, when Biden comes out and repeats the lie, strapping immigrants, whipping immigrants didn't happen, did not happen. There's no evidence. There's no video. There's no photos. The photo that was widely circulated, the photographer said, yeah, there wasn't whipping. We didn't see whipping. Border Patrol says our members don't have whips. But Biden said it anyway, and he said the people responsible for the non-existent whipping will pay. But there's an investigation. The president of the United States, the leader of the executive branch, has already rendered his verdict. Based on a lie. His own lie. But there's an investigation underway. Again, it's I talked about incoherence in the last segment. There's more incoherence here. Now, I want to make one more point that's very... I think crucial to the conversation about the border crisis because I was tweeting about Mayorkas and some of his answers and I had lefties arguing back saying, oh, no, these are not illegal immigrants. Don't call them illegal immigrants. They are asylum seekers and they are acting within the law. Asylum is something that has a very specific definition that many, many people are not eligible for. You have to be basically in clear, present, current danger in your nation of origin. That is not the case For these Haitians in Del Rio who came from South America, most of them already had refugee status in countries like Brazil and Chile. They were not in immediate danger. The Mexican government said we offered them asylum. They didn't want that. They just wanted to come to America. They don't have a right to be here. I know you want to come. I would want to come if I weren't an American. But they don't have a right to be here. And the Daily Caller found a bunch of refugee ID cards from Chile on the Mexican side of the border from these refugees, then coming into America, claiming that they need asylum, and they didn't want to have that evidence because it contradicts the point. This is Illegal Immigration.
5: Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz
1: podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on Fox News Podcast.com or
5: wherever you download podcasts.
0: Guy Benson.
1: We're back here on the Guy Benson Show, starting off a new broadcast week. Thanks for listening. Always. If you miss any part of the program, the podcast is free. GuyBensonShow.com, on demand every single day. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Well, things are getting rather interesting on Capitol Hill. It's going to be a, quote, time of intensity, is what Speaker Pelosi wrote to her members on the Democratic side in a memo this weekend. They are going to try to tee up a whole bunch of votes on a massive amount of spending, but we don't know how much spending and what's going to work and whether they have the votes. We analyzed this a bit last week as well. But it's pressure time now. The way that I sort of describe this is Pelosi has just thrown everything into a pressure cooker and is hoping that it works out. Because I think that the message will be to Democrats, we've got the majorities, barely. We need to do something with them right now. If we fail, then it's a disaster for the party altogether. We cannot fail. I'm eager to see what this actually looks like, although I'm also a bit nervous to see how this all turns out. And joining us now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who's a budget analyst and an expert. He worked for many years on the Hill. He knows the numbers inside and out. And Brian, welcome back to the show. Good to have you. Glad to be here, Guy. I want to start with a talking point that has now taken flight at the White House, seemed to start with the president himself. Often you will get these sort of like trickle up talking points where people will start Attempting some trial balloons or some media hacks or commentators will try a line to see whether or not it works. And then if it seems to be you know gaining some steam or some traction, then it'll move its way up the food chain. This one appeared to start at the White House, and now some folks are dutifully rushing to get in line and salute. And I think this one is particularly sort of uniquely embarrassing. Which is uh, the new line from the White House or from the president himself is that the three point five trillion or whatever the number is going to end up being Democrat only spending binge is going to, quote, cost nothing. This is what Biden said on Friday. He tweeted over the weekend this building back better is going to cost zero dollars. That's what he said. It's a multi trillion dollar spending plan. He says it costs zero dollars and instantly this started to be repeated by someone at the Washington Post at the Associated Press of course at MSNBC circle back Jen Psaki the White House press secretary I was asked about this earlier today and I guess she has no choice but to double down on her boss's formulation this is now an official White House talking point listen to cut 36 this package, the reconciliation package, would cost zero dollars. So what I'm saying, what, I, what we are, the case we're making here is that there needs to be agreement on the different components. There's broad agreement on the goals. And then there needs to be agreement on what the revenue pay-fors are. This package is going to cost zero dollars, she said, as did the president, as are some journalists now, Brian. OK, in all of your years following these types of issues in government spending and budgets, Have you ever encountered the argument that a bill or a plan or a proposal that is supposedly paid for or would be paid for is therefore free and costs nothing?
5: It's absurd. It's absurd on so many levels. First off… In terms of just the term of budgetarily paid for, as in it doesn't add to the deficit, they have three and a half trillion dollars in spending, and so far maybe one or one and a half trillion dollars in taxes that Joe Manchin is promising to to take an even bigger axe to. So, just from a budgetary deficit standpoint, no, this thing is about two trillion dollars short, and there's no way they could even come up with the taxes to bring that any closer. But let's just pretend it was. Let's pretend that there was three and a half trillion dollars paid for by by three and a half trillion dollars in new taxes. That's not free. That's three and a half trillion dollars in new taxes. Um, you know, I don't know what world is increasing three and a half trillion dollars in spending, hypothetically paid for three and a half trillion in new taxes somehow cost nothing. It, 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 it's a significant increase in taxes by a lot of the people who aren't going to be getting the benefits. And furthermore, even if it was fully paid for, you're using up $3.5 trillion in taxes that are now no longer available to address the $100 trillion in budget deficits that were already projected over the next 30 years. Which means if you use up all the upper income taxes for this, Who do you think is going to be taxed to cover the $100 trillion baseline shortfall over the next 30 years?
1: Well, the rich and greedy companies. I mean, that's what they'll say, right? Rich people and greedy companies, that's always those awful people who aren't paying their fair share. And it's just this bottomless pit of rhetoric uh, when it comes to the types of revenue raisers that you might need in the future. They're not talking about dealing with the $100 trillion dollar shortcoming and and the the massive amount of unfunded liabilities and unpaid for promises they're going to try to talk about fair shares and rich people and corporations for the next huge expansions of government spending that they're going to try next i mean it's just an onward march always and forever with these people and it doesn't matter what the numbers are it doesn't matter what the truth is if they're willing to say that three and a half trillion dollars of new spending costs zero dollars because they are inventing and dreaming up some budgetary gimmick where they can say it's technically paid for and doesn't add to deficits. I mean, that is an abuse of the English language in what the plain meaning of words mean, right? So, I mean, if they're willing to go with this from the president on down, we're not going to ever have a serious conversation, especially if there are journalists out there saying, oh, gosh, that's a shiny new talking point. Isn't that fun? If it helps the Democrats, let's just repeat it uncritically. $3.5 trillion is really zero dollars.
5: Yeah, and it's an absurd talking point. It's economic fantasy land. Like I said, Democrats at this point don't even have a trillion dollars in taxes to pay for this. Um, mansion and cinema over in the Senate have poured cold water on most of the policies that haven't already been jettisoned by the House, which is why they're already reaching down into the middle class now with the possibility of tobacco taxes. You know, yeah. Whenever they say it's just going to be taxing the rich, give me a break. The middle class always get left holding the bag. But as you point out, it's also Absurd that you have, of course, reporters who I've seen on Twitter for the last two days parroting these talking points and explaining that this this is cost-free. Again, even if they even if they came up with three and a half trillion dollars in taxes, which they won't, that's still an enormous cost on families, corporations, producers, and the economy. Um, Of course, they're totally detached from reality, but they're also going to get away with it.
1: You know, it's what's interesting too is I had not seen. Until very recently, the term irregular migration when it comes to illegal immigration. The previous one was undocumented immigrants. A new buzz phrase, at least I'm just hearing it more now, is irregular migration. It is not something I was familiar with as, you know, in the lexicon of our political discourse. I started to hear it from the Biden administration very recently. Irregular migration as their euphemism for illegal immigration – And like within days, it's popping up in the Washington Post. It's like the Democrats put out a style guide of how we can talk. And we talk about pregnant people, not women anymore. We talk about irregular migration, not even undocumented immigration. And in this case, uh, spending isn't really spending. It's just zero dollars if it's paid for, even if it's just an assertion that it's paid for as opposed to actually paid for. It must be nice to be a Democrat where the media just sort of backfills their own coverage based on whatever new rhetorical fantasy that you've come up with. And I don't want to drag this all into media bias, although it's obviously a pertinent topic here. I want to talk about the actual numbers themselves. And someone who doesn't, actually, is Speaker Pelosi. I love this soundbite. Here she was yesterday in cut 36—excuse me, cut 18. Listen.
6: So, again, the Senate and the House, those who— are not in full agreement with the president's. Right. Let's see what our value. Let's not talk about numbers let's, and dollars. Let's talk
4: about values.
1: Brian, let's not talk about numbers or dollars. I know we're trying to spend three point five trillion dollars that we don't have and say that it's fully paid for, even though it's not even one third paid for. But let's not talk about all that. What really matters right now is values.
5: I mean, when I go out and buy an expensive boat that I can't afford, at the end of the month, Visa comes to me and says, we want our money back. Uh, We we want the the thousands of dollars that you put on your credit card. And I say to Visa, let's not talk about dollars. Let's talk about values. Let's talk about the joy that this boat brings into my life and how much it's good for my family. I mean, it's like, it's Brian, just to
1: to, uh, merge this with another recent controversy, you could just say, you know, sorry, Visa, but I'm having fun and feeling the spirit, which is what we heard from the San Francisco mayor violating her own mask mandate. Maybe there's a let's not talk about numbers if you're feeling the spirit um, sort of loophole here. If you're an elected Democrat, it feels like the elected Democrats have a lot of very special ways that they get to act and comport themselves and mangle the English language and and rebuild words to their own liking.
0: I mean, this is,
5: this is the irresponsible and somewhat childish behavior of nations that have completely given up on any sort of economic coherence anymore. When they start saying, okay, we're making commitments that are not remotely affordable and don't add up, so let's just not talk about how much it costs. Let's talk about the wonderful things we can purchase with this. This is the kind of thing that 20 years from now, when our, when our kids and grandkids are paying exorbitant taxes and interest rates you know, are higher, they're going to look back and be can be so uh, betrayed by, by the complete re- refusal to even deal with fiscal reality. Of course the cost matters because the cost of, this, of these bills represent taxes or they represent oh. debt. And, no, and that's where,
1: Brian, be I have sense. to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you. That's where you're wrong. There is no cost. You keep talking about cost, Brian, like $3.5 trillion is trillions of spending, but I'm reliably informed by the president of the United States and the White House Pre- uh, press secretary and the White House chief of staff and journalists at the Associated Press and MSNBC and Washington Post that this costs zero dollars. And the thing is, a lot of people will just sort of – Believe it because they'll believe whatever a certain segment of the political spectrum tells them to believe. Of course, the math doesn't care, right? Facts don't care about your BS, but BS is what's being used to try to ram this thing through. I actually almost wonder, and maybe I'm being too optimistic and and hopeful here. Maybe I shouldn't be, Brian. Is this talking point so prima facie ridiculous and insulting That it could backfire where some moderates and and other people are going to say, I mean, my goodness. If you believe that you're building back better or whatever this garbage is, if you believe that it's a great, necessary set of policies and raising a huge amount of taxes and spending all that money, it's worth it. And here's the case why. That would be one thing. Instead, you're saying it costs zero dollars. I think instinctively, even a lot of lemmings and typical political sheep might I don't know might pause at that one.
5: Yeah, I mean if you take a look at polling on on fiscal issues most Americans generally believe they're being lied to and screwed on tax and budget issues. Um, when, when when taxes are cut, people polled will say, "I don't believe I got a tax cut. You probably raised my taxes." Uh, when spending is not cut, people will say, "Yeah, my spending actually probably did get cut." In general, the American people usually assume that on taxes and spending they are being cheated and lied to by politicians, um, even when they're not. Like I said, even when their taxes were cut in 2017, people didn't believe it. This is an instance where I think the cynicism is both correct and will be widely believed outside of the echo chamber there might be americans who think that this stuff is affordable and i believe that i want the benefits and i'm just going to pretend the cost really isn't a big deal but i really doubt that outside the most progressive echo chambers you're actually going to get people saying yes three trillion dollars in spending is free um i I think there there might be people who don't want to think about it but there's going to be a Hopefully not many people who actually enthusiastically buy this rhetoric.
1: So I just want to revisit a point that you touched on ever so briefly, but I think it's actually quite important to the larger conversation here because the Democrats – the way that this talking point is working is they're saying our new definition of the way we talk is if a bill, even on paper – is fully quote unquote paid for. And a lot of it's gimmicks where they they say, okay, we're going to use ten years worth of payfers for just five years worth of policy and they're never going to get rid of it because getting rid of stuff is hard and people get angry about it. So we're just going to basically jerry rig the system to make it look temporarily like it's all paid for. And if it is all quote-unquote paid for, we will say that costs zero dollars because it's deficit neutral. That is not what any of those words actually mean in reality. That's the new reality that they're trying to construct with this talking point. But you said they don't have anywhere close to the dollar amount in tax revenue increasers uh, to to justify the claim right now. Biden has also promised that only rich people— And, you know, deep pocketed corporations will pay more, although they want to raise the corporate tax even higher than China's and make us less competitive. I think that's bad for business. Separate issue. You mentioned there's tobacco taxes and vaping taxes that they're uh, considering. I saw a carbon tax. Both of those things would significantly hurt middle and working class people, direct tax increases on them, even though Biden said that would never happen. Right.
5: Right. I mean, I mean this, this goes right back to, you know, I'm old enough to remember Bill Clinton promising no new middle class taxes, breaking that his first year in the White House because the numbers didn't add up. Barack Obama promised no new middle class taxes. He broke that within the first two years because, again, the numbers didn't add up. And that's where, that's where the reality Democrats are facing. Even if they had the votes for a lot of their progressive tax policies, they don't produce anywhere close to the to the revenue levels that have been promised,
1: the idea. And, and by the way, that is true over and over again, and it's something that you just beat your head up against a wall in columns that you write. Just seemingly, like every month, you're like, "By the way, these tax increases and this magic of taxing the rich—it actually doesn't work out in terms of the math." But when the math can be in this Orwellian way completely changed, where 3.5 trillion is actually zero dollars at all. Uh, sort of in 1984 land, uh, which is kind of frightening. If it works, we'll see if it does work for Speaker Pelosi. It is crunch time in the House and the Senate. They don't have the votes yet. I still think they're going to pull something out of a hat. Probably not quite what they want, but I'd be surprised if it all falls apart. It still might. But the most important thing is zero dollars. Trillions of spending actually cost nothing, and, Brian, this segment never even happened. It's a figment of all of our imaginations, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute. Thanks for not joining us. (laughs) Thanks for not hosting me.
0: And we'll be right back, maybe. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My
2: name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world.
0: You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
6: We talked about price tags. It is zero price tag. We're paying. We're going to
3: pay for everything we spend. So they say it's not, you know, people understand
6: them. Well, you know, it started off at $6 trillion, Now it's $3.5 trillion. Now it's is it going to be two point nine. It's going to be zero.
1: Zero. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's the Guy Benson show. That was uh, Uncle Joe. It's like when the crazy uncle replies all. To a family email with some new conspiracy theory and everyone usually rolls their eyes. But the difference is he's the president. So they're all like, oh, gosh, I guess we have to make this a thing now. All right, everyone, we're saying it costs zero dollars. Let's go. The media's like, oh, goody, we like this. Let's do that, too. It's crazy. Biden got his booster shot today, by the way, on TV. Mitch McConnell did as well. I support these moves. We'll talk to Dr. Gottlieb about that coming up in our final hour. But our middle hour is up next. Byron York is here as soon as we come back. Guy Benson Show. Stay with us.
0: Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. (laughs) Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
1: Middle Hour is now underway here on The Guy Benson Show. We air from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. And you can get the whole show at your fingertips on demand for free on the podcast at the conclusion of the program every day. GuyBensonshow.com is our website. A reminder that I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Mayer. It's a good panel day. It's a busy panelist. Myself, Wally Hemingway, Britt Hume, Harold Ford Jr. So please tune in for that on the news channel around 6.40 p.m. Eastern time. Fox News alert as we get going here. In our middle hour, the Dow closes up 71 points today, ending at 34,869. Let's bring in Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I have to say this, Byron. We have learned from the president himself in the last few days, that border patrol agents were whipping illegal immigrants, and they're going to pay for that. And that 3.5 trillion dollars in spending actually is a cost of zero dollars. I have to tell you, it is so refreshing to have the truth-telling adults back in charge. Finally, the adults are
6: back in charge. You know, one of the things I was thinking of as the president was talking about the um, the mounted border uh, patrol officers. Um, was all of the mounted police one sees in Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, Metropolitan Police Department in Washington has a mounted unit. The um, New York City, NYPD, has a mounted unit. This is, this is not something that's unusual uh, and not just on the frontier. And uh, the idea that, that the president would essentially tell his uh, uh, secretary of Homeland Security to stop Uh, all mounted patrols or all use of horses out there in Texas where they've been used for a very long time and where they're often dealing in places where there aren't roads was just extraordinary. But uh, I do believe, you know, what I think happened was, as you know, you've seen a lot of polls, and when you ask, you know, do you approve President Biden's handling of the economy or foreign policy or whatever, uh, the border is always the lowest job approval for Biden, somewhere in the 30s. Uh, Well, what happened, I think, after the horse incident was Biden could see uh, some of those few people who did approve of his handling of the border leaving him um, because they were angry uh, at the use of these horses and what they had heard about, the alleged whipping of of migrants there. So I I think that's what accounts for the president's super-fast, knee-jerk reaction.
1: Yeah, and I also, one of my theories last week was, It's obviously a disaster at the border. It's been an ongoing crisis. The numbers are at multi-decade highs. Uh, It's gotten worse. It shows no signs of getting better. And rather than actually grapple with the policy failure that is ongoing, they had an opportunity to sort of vent anger, right, and be indignant about something. And it was more in their comfort zone, which was bashing law enforcement and border patrol, which is something that comes to them naturally as opposed to you know realizing that gosh these people have a really hard job to do and we're making it harder let's take a made up incident and run with it because our base is very angry based on misinformation we're not going to correct the misinformation because the misinformation at least allows us to talk about something other than our own failures so let's just lean into it and and double down on the lie and that's what they've done and we've spent you know the better part of a week now talking about something that literally did not happen, that the president insists did happen to the point that people will pay for their malfeasance. And they're all using the word horrifying. They're all horrified, 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 Byron. And this comes back to your point, actually, about uh, police forces here in the U.S. And I made this point on Friday on the show in a conversation that I was having. New York City police officers, they don't have mounted units because they need horses, Right. It's you know, we're a long way past needing horses to go to get around New York City. There's another reason why horses are a staple in police departments in urban areas. And it has to do with enforcement, terrain, crowd control and that sort of thing. I did not realize that was all horrifying and offensive until I guess it was just a collectively decided in the left wing hive mind that because they didn't like an image that they were told involved whipping, even though it didn't, uh, the horses are now canceled just because. I mean, you, you ask them to sort of specify what the problem is and what is so horrifying. They don't really have an answer because there is no good answer. It's just this this sort of zeitgeist, a feeling that they all have, that they've just dis- decided on together and they're sticking to the story.
6: You know, it's funny. I went back and read a few uh, profiles about mounted police units and I, I did read one from New York City um, in which they really like the idea they 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 use the phrase ten foot cops because if you 're standing on the ground and there 's a policeman mounted in front of you I and mean, he 's about a ten foot cop and he's you know, obviously the horse is big and imposing. And when you talk about control, crowd control, it does intimidate people. And it's actually for that purpose. Um, so it's the, the president w- was talking about a long and well-accepted um, method of law enforcement. Now, uh, I assume... But why, Byron, taught- I
1: think the question mm-hmm. the question would have to be then, and I, the media is just so hopeless in so many ways. I would love to see a drill down... Because they all, oh, well, we're terribly, terribly horrified. Okay, why? There were no whips. That's a lie. What are you horrified by? Well, the horses and the, uh, you know, they'll, they'll just sort of ramble and stammer and say, these images are not who we are. There's no specificity there. I would love then, you know, a, an even deeper follow up. If it's okay for NYPD, Or, you know, name the police department, LAPD, Chicago, whatever, if it's okay for them to be on horseback for purposes of crowd control in controlling U.S. citizens, why is it not okay for effectively crowd control for Border Patrol agents to be mounted on horseback to try to stop illegal immigrants from entering the country? I can't imagine what their answer would be, but I'd love to at least see them forced to try to answer it. Yeah, well, it goes back to the fact that this is just a huge distraction
6: from what was really going on at Del Rio, which was a complete disaster, which was uh, this uh, flood of illegal border crossers, completely overwhelming uh, U.S. facilities there, and many of them, I don't know, half, more than half, uh, being allowed to enter the country, even though they much more than likely do not have a legitimate claim of asylum. You know, I I watched um, Secretary Mayorkas on Fox News Sunday yesterday, and Chris Wallace said, well, why didn't you just stop them from entering the country? Why why, why didn't you build a wall (laughs) or a fence to stop them from just walking into the uh, country? And Mayorkas' answer was really interesting. Uh, It is the policy of this administration, we do not agree with the building of a wall. The law provides that individuals can make a claim for humanitarian relief. That is actually one of our proudest traditions. And what he's doing is he's mixing two laws. First of all, uh, it is illegal to cross into the United States without authorization. It's just illegal. Try doing it at an airport, you know, show up with no papers, Uh, they won't let you in. But it is also a fact that uh, if you are physically – if you're uh, what they call an alien, you are physically present in the United States, you can't apply for asylum. So what the administration is doing is saying if someone who's present in the United States has a right to uh, apply for asylum, then if we keep them from entering the United States, we're taking away their right to apply for asylum. We can't do that. That is a recipe for an open border. It's what we saw. Yeah, there's no limiting principle there at all.
1: Exactly. And I think that's almost, you know, the point, because he was asked, what because the question from – and, in fact, we, we have part of the soundbite. We played it earlier. Let's listen to it again. As a matter of fact, this is cut 14, part of the exchange that you just referenced, Byron.
3: Why did you allow them in the country in the first place? Why didn't you build – Forgive me. A wall or a fence to stop them from walking in this flood of people coming across the dam. It looks like a highway that allows them to cross the Rio Grande.
2: It is this the policy of this administration. Uh, We do not agree with the building of the wall.
1: So basically, we're not going to do that thing because we don't want to. And the last guy chanted, "Build the wall." We don't want to do anything that the last guy did, even if it was working. With this remain in Mexico policy and, you know, the the safe third country agreements and all of that stuff, we trashed it instantly because it was Trump and he said build the wall. And so we're not going to do it because we don't want to. I mean, it seems manifestly obvious, Byron, watching the, the video that a physical barrier or structure, a wall, fence, whatever you want to call it, would go a long way to preventing some of these people from entering the country illegally in the first place asked why they won't build the wall, it's just because we won't, right? It's sort of this tautological answer. We won't do it because it's not our policy, and it's not our policy because we won't do it.
6: Now, Joe Biden can say, I ran for president on a platform in part of stopping wall construction and doing away with this wall that Donald Trump wanted to build, and I got elected. Uh, That's true, no doubt about it. Uh, I talked with uh, a couple of days ago with Mark Morgan, who's a former um, top border official in the Trump years. Uh, and he said the Del Rio area was an area that had been slated for uh, wall construction in the relatively near future had Trump been reelected. Because you looked at and you think, well, this is such an easy place to um, uh, cross over. Uh, perhaps there should be a barrier there. Um, and he said the problem, uh, as it often was, was land acquisition, getting uh, getting the land and the permission to uh, to build something on the border, because not all of the border is government land. But there's simply no doubt that uh, a barrier in Del Rio would have prevented what happened in Del Rio. Now, maybe, maybe crowds would have gone to some other area, which is why you need to build barriers uh, through all of the easily passable areas because there are plenty of places on the border that are really not
1: easily passable. No, but, but, but and, Byron, and they, they don't actually want to enforce the border is the point. It would be that it's very tribal. They don't want to do the thing that the last guy said for political reasons. But on top of that, they don't want to stop people from entering the country illegally because they're – Ultimately, push come to shove in favor of it. And I know that some people would say, oh, that's that's not fair. That's uh, you know, that's a demagogic way of framing the Democratic position. I've been watching what they've done for the last, what, six, eight months. And it's hard to land with a different conclusion than that, given everything, virtually every single thing that they've done there down there, Byron. Um, Am I overstating it?
6: Yeah, and I think they were I think they were embarrassed and upset that, that this thing happened so fast with so many people, and thus therefore got attention as opposed to a, just a slower but steadier flow of people across the United uh, across the border who would be allowed to um, to enter the United States. And I think the Biden administration did one thing that's kind of interesting in retrospect, which is uh, they did do, according to Mayorkas, a couple of thousand. Uh, people who were uh, repatriated to Haiti. They, you know, they, had not, they were not from Haiti in the last several years. They were originally from Haiti, so they, there were these repatriation flights. And then remember, Mallorca said, well, about 8,000 of the migrants uh, decided to go back to Mexico. And we have some reporting on the ground from the Center for Immigration Studies, which looks at this stuff, has somebody over there, uh, and who talked to a lot of uh, of the migrants who were basically... So scared by the prospect of being returned to Haiti that they said, well, I think we'll go back to Mexico for a while. But their intention, their plan is to wait Biden out. And I think they're smart in this. They understand American politics, which is Wait till things, you know, cool off. Biden's going to stop the repatriation. This will all be, uh, this will go away and the press will become obsessed with something else. And then they can cross into the Yeah, United come on States. in.
1: And we're, they're not going to get sent home. They won't show up for their court dates. And they'll just become um, part of the multi-million individual population of illegal immigrants that continues to grow in this country and is growing I mean by leaps and bounds under this administration it's it's been a total dereliction and I think again I think some of it is as unquestionably intentional Um, and you know you can argue about how much of it is but I think some of it certainly is that's my observation as someone who is not terribly hawkish on immigration uh, but this administration is sort of forcing me (laughs) to become more hawkish because I would like to see Borders enforced. I know that's crazy and radical and extreme, but that's where I land. Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor. Byron, always appreciate it. Talk soon. Thank you, Guy. See you. It's the Guy Benson Show. A word on Afghanistan. We don't want to lose sight of that. A disturbing update from Afghanistan is next.
0: You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson.
1: Welcome back and thank you for listening. We are not going to avert our gaze from the disaster that is still unfolding, the catastrophe in Afghanistan. I know President Biden talked last week at the UN about turning the page on Afghanistan. He was very much hoping that would also be the case within the media. So Americans sort of forget about the abject betrayal and failure that he presided over actively as President of the United States in that country. We are not going to be part of the racket. And make that deflection any easier for him, especially when there are so many people still stuck, stranded and abandoned in a country now run by terrorists. There's a woman named Jean Marie Thrower, who is a former U.S. military officer. She is now part of the group sort of spearheading one of these organizations to try to get people out of Afghanistan through private efforts. They're trying to coordinate with the State Department as much as they can. Their communication and assistance from the State Department has been mixed at best. In fact, the assessment has been pretty negative about the Biden administration's help or lack thereof here. But she was on Fox News just the other day. And she said based on her organization and the intel that they have and the list that they are keeping as they're trying to get American citizens out of Afghanistan, remember, the administration tells us there's about 100 Americans left in Afghanistan. And that number hasn't budged for weeks. You would think it would be 100. And, hey, good news, it's down to 70. Good news, it's down to 30. We're really getting close. Have you heard any of that? No, you have not. They keep saying it's around 100. She says, well, actually, based on our numbers and what we know is the case, it is much higher. Quote, definitely there are more than the hundred that's being stated. She puts the number closer to a thousand U.S. citizens stuck in Afghanistan. Secretary Blinken has already admitted that there are thousands, plural, of U.S. permanent legal residents and green card holders, i.e. Americans, who have a right to be here. Thousands of them are stuck in Afghanistan. And then tens of thousands of U.S. allies, Afghan allies, who we promised to get out of there. And then, of course, broke that promise and discarded it like it was nothing. But the U.S. citizen number, it's not 100, this group says, this leader of the group. She says it's closer to 1,000. And the math has always been sort of squirrely and shady from the Biden people. I don't trust them at all on that number. And by the way, about our Afghan allies, horrible, horrible scene Over the weekend in Afghanistan, the Taliban hung a dead body from a crane parked in a city square. They had four other bodies that they displayed elsewhere in the country to send a message. They are hunting these people down who helped us and they are executing them. And the Biden administration is turning the page.
0: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson.
1: Monday here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for free podcasts every day should you miss any of our live action. I want to bring you this story. It is pretty wild. And I saw some of the screenshots of it on social media over the weekend. We now have, over the last few months, two major, I would say, mainstream publications with significant followings, especially on the political left, that have at least indulged or played footsie with the idea of left-wing eco-terrorism. There was a column over the summer in the New York Times by Ezra Klein, who fancies himself a very, very wonky wonk, so wonky and so reasonable and so erudite. And he wrote this uh, very highfalutin column that was sort of questioning whether or not we should embrace as a society or at least perhaps – And he wrote this very sort of erudite-seeming column back in July for the Times about a book by this professor who is a radical environmentalist who is calling for more terrorism and so-called sabotage, blowing up pipelines, for example. Klein wrote back in July, Violence is often deployed, even if counterproductively, on behalf of causes far less consequential And the climate crisis, so skepticism of the practical benefits of violence does not fully explain its absence in a movement this vast with consequences this grave. Sort of chin-stroking about why it is that environmentalists have been so nonviolent given the high stakes. And I would just point out first, they haven't been terribly nonviolent. There have been acts of eco-terrorism for decades stretching back years. And officials in the United States and law enforcement for a very long time have put eco-terrorists very much in the mix when it comes to the top terrorism sources here in the United States, certainly on the domestic side of things. To pretend like Greenpeace hasn't engaged in this sort of thing and other organizations, of course they have. Sabotage, fires, explosions – the radical environmentalist movement really out there on the fringe, they have resorted to violence, and they've justified it exactly the same way, talking about how urgent the crisis is. And the more that we have elites say, well, the climate crisis is so urgent, it's in fact an existential threat to humanity in our very existence. That's the type of rhetoric that can be seized upon to justify perhaps increasing measures. Of this nature criminal attacks terrorism right using violence and crime and destruction to try to achieve political ends that is the definition of terrorism so Ezra Klein gave this book by this professor a respectful hearing in the pages of the New York Times which I think is pretty extreme and disturbing And I'll give a parallel example from an alternate universe in just a second, but the reason I bring this up is not just because of an interview over the summer, but The New Yorker had a podcast with David Remnick. So this is another high-profile person in a prestige publication. The New Yorker podcast hosted this activist and professor named Andreas Malm. He is from Lund University, with which I am not familiar but as FoxNews.com reports, this podcast was used as a platform for the professor to promote, quote, intelligent sabotage and property damage and destruction as ways to stop or combat climate change. Quote, Andreas Malm insists the environmental movement rethink its roots in nonviolence and instead embrace intelligent sabotage. That's the description of the interview in the New Yorker podcast. And again, I sort of quibble significantly with the underlying assumption, the underlying premise that they have been just scrupulously nonviolent and haven't done this stuff in the past. They have a lot. This professor is just calling for more of it. That's what the difference seems to be. And foxnews.com goes further. In the podcast, the professor emphasized, quote, a call for escalation. A call for the movement to diversify its tactics and move away from an exclusive focus. Again, it's not been exclusive, but he claims an exclusive focus on polite, gentle and perfectly peaceful civil disobedience. What I'm recommending that the movement continues with mass action and civil disobedience, but also opens up for property destruction. He's a human ecology professor. He does not dismiss peaceful demonstrations And he says he does not condone hurting people, but he does emphasize that destroying private property would not be morally illegitimate. Now, here's the thing when you have this kind of violence and this kind of property destruction, especially on any sort of a wide scale, people do get hurt. People do get killed. There are sometimes unintended consequences when people are committing crimes, when you're setting fires, when you're Detonating explosions, sometimes things don't go quite according to plan. People who weren't supposed to be somewhere end up being somewhere. And you see a real human cost. All right. So this is not a victimless crime when it comes to actual physical harm or death. And I'm actually reminded of so much of our conversation that we had, our discourse, if you can call it that, last summer during so many of the riots where cities would burn, buildings would burn. There was looting and violence, and we had a lot of people on the political left either looking the other way or actively excusing it, saying, well, we don't condone violence, of course. However, it's just property damage, right? It's just a building. People have insurance. There was a death toll in those riots, which I just alluded to, people being murdered. Some of them intentionally, others accidentally. People were hurt. And a lot of businesses suffered gravely because either they had not enough insurance or they had sufficient insurance, but it didn't pay out everything that they were going to need to be able to rebuild a business. So they just shut down. People's livelihoods were lost, disintegrating in a moment. That's in a pile of ash from a fire, for example, that was set. This was the litany that we heard, the excuses. Is it really violence? It's just a building. They can tap into their insurance funds. And the reality for a lot of people differed from those words. And again, it's a lot of the same crowd that argue that words are tantamount to violence speech that they don't like, they call it violence, they conflate it with violence, then they look at actual real violence, intimidation, property destruction, criminal activity, and they want to downplay its severity. That was what we heard from far too much of the left last year, and here we have in the span of just a few weeks the New York Times and the New Yorker giving an amplification opportunity for a professor who is arguing overtly and affirmatively in favor of eco-terrorism. Saying, well, if it's just destruction of private property, is that really so bad? And just as a quick thought experiment, of course you would never see this at the New York Times and the New Yorker, but let's say that's it's like somewhat prestigious center-right leaning publications like the Wall Street Journal, the editorial board. If they had an interviewer, some columnist, like Daniel Henninger or Kim Strassel wrote a column in The Wall Street Journal somewhat favorably reviewing a new book from an anti-abortion extremist who was saying, gosh, we're not getting everything that we want. We aren't making the progress that we really need. It's a life or death issue. Right? You can always – fanatics can always justify fanaticism and extremism because the issue is just so important. And a civilized society, a civilization says, no, that is not how we do things here. But it seems like those boundaries are being blurred a little bit on the left. Back to this counterfactual, this other example of the equivalent on the right, you could have this, you know, let's say an anti-abortion not, and I'm a pro-lifer, but we do not endorse or accept violence ever as we try to stop what... Many of us view as a human rights violation and an urgent issue. If you had this guy put out a book saying what we need to do, yes, it's fine to have vigils and candlelight protests and, you know, pregnancy centers and that sort of thing. But what we also should do is stop being so nice and polite, pretending, by the way, like there haven't been acts of violence in the past, which there have been on that front as well. And let's just go around and bomb or burn down abortion clinics at night. People won't be there. We won't be harming the people who work there or anything like that, but we're going to burn these places to the ground or plant bombs overnight. Now, you might get an occasional overnight janitor who dies, but that's collateral damage and it's worth it because it's such an important consequential issue and it's just property damage. It's really just brick and mortar. It's just some clinic. Planned Parenthood, they've got insurance. The Wall Street Journal would never favorably review a book like that or have the author on for just sort of like, oh, a friendly, and it's fascinating, fascinating conversation. They wouldn't and they shouldn't because that's not acceptable. And I think everyone else in the media would lose their minds for effectively aiding and abetting terrorism or giving a platform to terrorism. If National Review had one of their podcasts where their editors showed up and interviewed this exact same hypothetical extremist and they promoted it and said, oh, here's here's our sit-down, that is normalizing. It would be, I think, correctly condemned as normalizing something that must not be normalized. Even if it's not an outright endorsement, it's sort of – tipping the Overton window open just a little further to something that is not acceptable. And I really don't think that this is too far off as an example, as a hypothetical parallel on the right. I think everyone who is seriously pro-life and cares about not just that issue, but but civilization broadly and institutions and the rule of law, Every single person would ignore a nut like that. They would not be given the type of platform that this professor has now been given, the New York Times and the New Yorker. It's distressing, right? We've seen a lot of people very concerned about the Capitol riots on January 6th, and I'm one of them. I think they were completely indefensible, totally unacceptable. But if you had people coming on this show, for example, arguing, well, you know, Maybe it wasn't so bad and maybe it was justified. And of course, it was sad that anyone got hurt. That should have never happened. But I think we all know exactly what the reception would look like for that. And yet on the left here, you have ostensibly respectable organizations and respectable people. Just sort of asking questions about whether blowing up pipelines Might be the new thing that environmentalists turn to increasingly because they're frustrated with the democratic process and not getting their way. So they have to take more direct action. What do we think of this? Isn't this an interesting discussion? That's the way they're treating it sort of academically when in fact it is very radical. So I think it is bad on the merits. I think it is actually pretty shameful that they decided to go down this route on this issue. I think a bright line because I'm in favor of free speech, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be able to give even very extreme opinions, but organizations have a choice about who they're going to amplify. And I think a very bright line ought to be rejecting political terrorism. I don't think I'm way out on a limb there at all. I think I am firmly within the realm of norms that our friends on the left pretend to care about, right? They Oh, they are constantly worried about norms, especially involving Donald Trump. And are we seeing norms exploded or eroded? And look at these awful Republicans. Here's a very, very basic, extremely important norm. No, we do not accept or entertain violence and destruction to achieve political ends in the United States of America. And that norm seems to be maybe wavering just a little bit. On the mainstream left, which I find highly disturbing. And then, of course, there's just the double standards that I've already run through. The way that this would happen on the right, the way this would be treated if it happened on the right, the panic in the media. But these are their buddies, right? These are their people doing this, so it's just a little bit different. The rules are just different for Team Blue. Rinse and repeat. And we'll keep an eye on this because if you're going to get more quasi-apologies for this type of criminal behavior, I think you go down a very dark path. One that we should be able to link arms and reject basically unanimously in this country. We'll step aside. Come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere.
0: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents Podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox
1: News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Back on The Guy Benson Show, Dr. Scott Gottlieb coming up in the next hour. Looking forward to that lengthy conversation On the pandemic, I've got some, I think, fairly challenging questions for him upcoming. In the last segment, we were talking about an embrace of sabotage, or at least playing footsie with sabotage on the eco-terrorist left and some mainstream media figures. Well, here's a different kind of sabotage that we witnessed over the weekend. Political sabotage in Georgia. Former President Donald Trump went down to Georgia to have one of these rallies that he's having. And he kind of, sort of endorsed Stacey Abrams, the left-wing Democrat, to win the governor's race next year in Georgia.
2: Here's cut 24. When Stacey Abrams says, I'm not going to concede, that's okay, No problem. Oh, she's not going to concede. She's not going to concede. Of course, having her, I think, might be better than having your existing governor, if you want to know. Might, might very well be better.
1: Hear the crowd reaction. I'm not sure if they were agreeing or not sure because Stacey Abrams, who never conceded the race, like the ultimate sore loser down there in Georgia when she lost to Governor Kemp in 2018, I think she wants that job. The rumor is she's going to run. And she is someone who, for example, spread the lie about the new Georgia voting law. Right. The Jim Crow stuff. That was her rhetoric that she went all over TV talking about. She is way out there on the left. She also wants to be president. She's talked about this. Whatever you think of Brian Kemp, if you're big into Trump or anti-Trump or whatever, he is a much better governor than Stacey Abrams would ever be for Georgia. And for Donald Trump to suggest that she might be better, I think, is really way off the mark. He lost the state narrowly, then Republicans lost both Senate races down there earlier this year because a lot of Republicans just enough felt like it wasn't worth it to show up and vote. Does he want to turn Georgia completely blue? Because this is the way to do it. By telling Republican voters that voting doesn't really matter and maybe you're better off with Stacey Abrams. Are you kidding me? Republicans need to win by showing up next year. So I just want to put down the marker there. I cannot disagree more strongly on that issue. I'm not going to endorse Stacey Abrams for governor in Georgia, period, ever, as a conservative. Scott Gottlieb, up next, final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead.
0: bream is a podcast hosted by fox news channels shannon bream sharing inspirational stories personal anecdotes and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com america's listening to fox news
1: It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. And on the free podcast, should you miss a live minute, GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast on demand, free of charge. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight on Fox News Channel, joining Brett Bayer and the panel. That's usually around 6.40 p.m. Eastern, so we will see you there. Happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious and taking America by storm. They're expanding, new states to be announced soon. TheLongDrink.com is their website. We got our new shipment over the weekend, by the way. Pretty exciting stuff. TheLongDrink.com, you can see where it's sold near you or order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. I'm very excited to welcome our next guest to the show. He is Dr. Scott Gottlieb fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He served as the 23rd Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. He also serves currently on the board of Pfizer. He's also out with a new book about the pandemic entitled Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Doctor, it is great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I want to start just as a point of personal privilege by thanking you I know that's not necessarily the hardest-hitting way to begin an interview, but it has been a very scary year and a half for so many people, and trying to decipher and discern what is real and what is politics, what is sensible, and what's hyperbole, it's been a challenge. And I think throughout that time, you have served as a credible and serious voice of reason, and so just speaking on my behalf, I know I'm not alone, I just want to mention that appreciation at the top.
7: Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that.
1: Let's start with this, because I think for many Americans, it might feel academic to retread the ground of how we got here because people are understandably frustrated and eager to move on. They have extreme fatigue from all of the measures and mitigation and restrictions. But from the question of origins all the way to early decision-making processes, what is your broad assessment – of how this pandemic managed to crush us in the really devastating way that it has.
7: Well, look, I think, and the reason I wrote the book is because I think that there's a lot of focus on this sort of political narrative, where political leadership did or didn't do certain things. And I think that there is a more substantive story around the systemic shortcomings in the structure of our response, and in government agencies that were ill-equipped to respond to the crisis. And insofar as that's the case, and that's what I try to lay out in the book. I don't think that we're much better prepared today against the next pandemic than we were against this pandemic. We're more aware of our vulnerabilities, but we really haven't done anything to change the structural features of government, and the agencies that were ill-equipped to deal with this. Maybe our political um, response may be different. Uh, if something else emerged, maybe we may jump on it differently. But the actual tools we have aren't going to be much different. So we're going to need more fundamental reform of agencies like the Centers for Disease Control, which I think was the root of a lot of the shortcomings in our present response if we want to be better prepared for the future.
1: Yeah, one that comes to mind from the very beginning was the fiasco on testing at the CDC. And that was one in a whole series of stumbles. You say that you don't think that we're necessarily better prepared. I think that's a pretty concerning assessment coming from you because you're a member of the public health establishment. What would be some top, let's say, two or three preventative measures that you would try to start instituting today As we think about potential threats like this in the future, because I know everyone has been talking about COVID-19 and the pandemic as a once in a generation or once in a lifetime pandemic. And certainly we pray that's the case, but that's not guaranteed to be the case. What best practices were we lacking a year plus ago that you think we could have in place moving forward? Yeah, and this won't be the last pandemic. We're going to have more pandemics and
7: we're probably going to have a pandemic involving a novel strain of flu, which was always the fear. All the pandemic planning that we had engaged in had been in preparation for the potential that a novel strain of flu and particularly a bird flu would start to devastate the world. And so a lot of those, a lot of the planning that we do is very flu focused and it wasn't readily applicable to a coronavirus, but eventually that will come true. We will have a pandemic strain of flu. Testing is a good place to start. CDC, which was the agency that we turned to to really quarterback this entire response, doesn't have a logistical capacity. They didn't have the capacity to scale a national-level response to a public health crisis of this magnitude. And the testing became a very early stumble by the agency. You know, the agency is sort of very parochial. They they do things in-house. They're very insular. They're very siloed. And so the traditional approach for how uh, CDC deploys, develops and deploys a test is that if there's a new pathogen, CDC would be the first to get access to the new pathogen. It would be sent to CDC's labs. They would hold on to those viral samples. They would use them to develop a novel test. And then they would start to deploy that test to the public health labs around the country. There's 100 public health labs, each able to do about 100 tests a day. That's 10,000 tests a day, which was never going to be enough testing. Then if that's not sufficient, then they work with the clinical labs and the academic medical centers, get them starting to test and scaled up. And if that's still not enough, they turn to the commercial manufacturers and they develop a commercially available test. So it's a very sequential process. They don't hand off to industry and they don't make the components that other people need to develop their own tests available. So CDC held on to the viral samples. They wouldn't share them. They actually didn't start sharing them with manufacturers until the end of February. And they also... Um, wouldn't allow any commercial manufacturers to copy their test design. So CDC designed a test, and and if a company wanted to come in and say, look, we want to develop test kits that we could deploy to labs around the country, CDC said, okay, you have to sign an IP agreement, an intellectual property agreement with us, basically agreeing to our our terms. We want the ability to patent this. So they put these agreements in front of companies in January, and companies said, look, we're going to wait and see. You're developing this test. We can't spend weeks negotiating these legal terms with you we can't get access to the viral samples we need if we want to design our own test we can't copy your design so they all sat on the sidelines and this was the traditional approach this is what they had done also in the setting of zika infection and that's why we didn't have enough testing in the setting of zika so we, we should have learned our lessons in the past that when there's a new viral pathogen where you, you're going to need access to large amounts of testing early cdc wasn't going to be able to mount that kind of response and getting back to the issue of flu and just to sort of close the point with a flu pandemic, which is what we had prepped for, having access to diagnostic testing isn't as important because, first of all, the incubation period for flu is short. It's three days. So, you know, you're not going to be able to um, test people and prevent them from going out into the community and spreading the virus because they're going, to get, they're going to get infected so quickly after the exposure. And second of all, people aren't contagious with flu generally until after they manifest symptoms. So you have the opportunity to get people diagnosed because they'll present with symptoms. But with the, this coronavirus, the incubation period was very long and people were symptomatic um, and e- people were contagious even when they weren't symptomatic. So that's a whole different ball game, And the diagnostic testing became an essential tool for trying to control the pandemic. And we didn't have access to one.
1: What do you make of this whole issue on the origin of this virus and the theory about the lab leak? I know we weren't supposed to talk about that. It was sort of verboten for months. And then it's become uh, now, I guess, permitted to kind of float out there as a viable theory. I think it's at least a viable theory at this stage. And if it is, let's say, maybe not likely but plausible, what does that say about gain-of-function research? What does it say about how much we should or should not cooperate or even fund research like that in places like China where the government, I think it's clear and safe to say they were not forthcoming with the rest of the world. They were not eager to – Uh, Join the international community, sort of this all-hands-on-deck, we're all in this together situation. They were lying, they were covering up. I think when we look at geopolitics, are there lessons to be learned about the way that we go about research and cooperation uh, with certain governments around the world in the future?
7: Yeah, look, I think it's certainly more than plausible that this uh, came out of a lab. I think at the very least you have to give equal weight to the possibility this came out of nature, out of a so-called zoonotic source, an animal that came into contact with a human Or this was an accidental release from a lab, probably from a lab worker who became infected with a pathogen they were working on and went on to spread it in the community. And I would say that over time, the side of the ledger that tips in favor of a zoonotic source probably has been at, at the most stagnant and probably diminished over time. And the side of the ledger that tips in favor of this coming out of a lab, I think, has expanded over time, certainly because there's been circumstantial evidence around the Wuhan Institute of Virology, we know that there were some lab workers who became infected with, a, with something and sought medical care right around the time this virus started to spread. We know that um, novel coronaviruses were being researched in that lab. We know they were manipulating them to make them more humanized. We know they were infecting animals with human immune systems as a way to research these. We know they were doing their coronavirus research in so-called BSL-2 labs, which is lower It seems like a lot lab. of breadcrumbs.
1: seems like a lot, lot of breadcrumbs. breadcrumbs.
7: A lot of breadcrumbs, and you also have to um, incorporate uh, the Chinese government's behavior. I mean, that's, that's you, you should draw inferences from their behavior. They have not been forthcoming. They withheld key facts, including um, samples of the virus. They still haven't re- released the source strains. They haven't allowed uh, outside researchers to do testing of the lab workers to see if they have antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So you have to also factor in the government's behavior and the fact that they haven't been forthcoming with information um, that could disprove or help reduce the likelihood that people perceive the lab being a source of this virus. So setting setting that framework, if you give equal weight to both hypotheses or you give additional weight um, to the possibility this came out of a lab, it does reset how we think about the governance of research globally. We're going to have to get um, better security around BSL-4 labs, the highest security labs that do the most, the riskiest experiments. We're going to have to think about moving more research that used to go on in lower-level labs, like the BSL-2 labs, into BSL-4 labs. So, for example, I don't think anybody should be doing research with coronaviruses, novel coronaviruses anymore, in BSL-2 labs, yet that was commonplace prior to this SARS-CoV-2 epidemic. And we also have to think about what we publish. You know, we, we probably should not be doing gain-of-function research and creating novel pathogens. And if we do do that research, we shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be publishing those sequences, because that is a roadmap to anyone who wants to then manufacture that pathogen for nefarious purposes. And while nobody believes SARS-CoV-2 was a sort of manufactured bioweapon, this does change the calculus of how we look at the potential for pathogens that could be used as weapons in the future. There was always a presumption that a, a contagious respiratory pathogen would never be weaponized because it would blow back on you. If you were a nation state or even a terrorist group, you wouldn't weaponize a very contagious pathogen because you wouldn't be able to control it. But SARS-CoV-2, COVID, turned out to be an asymmetric risk to the Western world. It hurt the United States and other countries a lot more than it hurt other parts of the world. It was very hard for democracies to uh, implement and maintain respiratory precautions. And so nefarious groups looking in on this may say, you know what, we could weather this better than they can. And so I think it does change the calculus around how you think of respiratory pathogens. Well,
1: well, especially if those groups groups or governments place less value on human life, for example, which we know uh, some of them do or might in the future. We are speaking with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and author of the book Uncontrolled Spread. And doctor, after this commercial break, I want to ask you something that might be a little controversial given your pedigree and your resume, but I think it's an important question. We will get to that as soon as we return on The Guy Benson
0: Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour on the Guy
1: Benson show. We're back. Our guest is Dr. Scott Gottlieb, author of Uncontrolled Spread. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to ask you a question that might be a little bit sensitive, but you haven't shied away from this, and it goes to the credibility back at home here of the public health establishment. In the eyes of many millions of Americans, there's a poll out a few weeks ago from Gallup showing low confidence in CDC messaging. There has been I would say apparently a lack of risk assessment Seriousness among a lot of people making some of these decisions or certainly opining about them from a position of expertise for public consumption. There have been contradictions along the way, and I get sometimes this is fog of war and you're you're rolling with the punches and people are just trying to adapt, but some of the contradictions – very much feel political, and it feels like there have been political influence from certain special interest groups along the line. Flip-flops, noble lies is one term that people have used. Uh, Data that has not been great or as robust as we've seen in other parts of the world, where we're relying on the UK and Israel for data rather than our own robust data here in the United States. And then something that you've kind of harped on from time to time, a public health establishment that is slow to react to new things that we actually learn and establish about this virus to the point that it's very frustrating to a lot of people where it seems like the science is way ahead of the decision makers. As you think about all those different topics that I just sort of bundled together there, and it really does, you could just sort of as shorthand call it credibility of people really in your realm, how much is some of that distrust or concern earned? on the part of the American people, and what can be done for some of these institutions to restore confidence that I think inarguably has been at least eroded?
7: Hey, Look, I think, I think some of it's earned. A lot of the dialogue around we shouldn't get ahead of the science, it, really what the public health community was saying, or the CDC in many cases, wasn't we shouldn't get ahead of the science. It was we shouldn't get ahead of our interpretation of the science. CDC didn't want the policymakers getting ahead of their interpretation of the science. Um, I think we, public health agencies and officials weren't uh, completely transparent about the level of certainty they had around a lot of the recommendations that were being made and where there was more disagreement and more speculation versus other places. And the best example was the six-foot requirement, the single costliest measure through this whole pandemic, was the requirement that people have to stay six feet apart, probably the single cost, at least in my view. It's what forced many school districts to remain shut because they couldn't allow for six feet of distance. And, in fact, DeSantis in Florida was able to open his schools because they decided that three feet was appropriate. Um, the initial recommendation from CDC was actually for 10 feet of distance. There was a political official inside the Office of Management and Budget in the White House who said 10 feet isn't operative. We cannot require Americans to stay 10 feet apart. And the compromise was around six feet. So imagine if that had leaked out at the time. This was in the early days of the pandemic. Everyone would have said, this is White House interference in the CDC. If CDC wants 10 feet, they should get 10 feet. The six-foot requirement, nobody knows the basis of that. Um, it, it, we presume it came out of uh, studies involving flu, which, are pri- which primarily spreads through droplet transmission. Uh, this virus spreads through aerosols, so it spreads much longer distances. But the problem is, CDC was never forced, is never forced, in the guidance they issue to really put a substantive explanation not only of the basis of their guidance, but their level of certainty. Like, if you go to an intelligence estimate from CIA or NSA, they'll say, we assess this, and then they'll say, we assign a moderate degree of certainty to our assessment. CDC never talks like that. Everything they issue, and the public health community generally, is with a degree as if it's immutable. The the word of
1: God has come down. So I think, you
7: know, I think it's a stylistic thing, and I think it's also a a reluctance of people in public health positions to acknowledge when there's uncertainty for fear that people then won't follow the guidance. Um, But my view is if there is uncertainty, you should sort of state the level of certainty because people are Mm going to people have a right to make a judgment about what guidance they're going to prioritize. So, for example, states should have known that CDC didn't re- wasn't really sure six feet was right distance, so they could have made a decision that this was what they were going to compromise on. They're going to follow this piece of guidance more strictly, but since there's less certainty around this one, they're going to do what Florida did and say, you know what, three feet may be appropriate because we want to keep our schools open, and that's a judgment we're going to make. But without understanding what the basis is of these these recommendations and the level of certainty, it... It robbed people of the ability to make judgments about how they were going to assign, you know, um, vigor to the different measures. Sure, and and that's just one, one
1: example of many. And by the way, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, his book is Uncontrolled Spread. And, Doctor, I want to press further on one of these issues in particular and then maybe get your rapid reaction on a few other important topics before we let you go. We will get to all of that straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Benson. We are back here on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson show, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, medical doctor. He is here discussing his new book, Uncontrolled Spread. And we were just talking about some of the credibility issues with the public health establishment, drilling down on one of these controversies and issues with risk assessment and public policy. I think you and I might not quite see eye to eye on this one. But it's a hobby horse of mine on the show, and I can explain briefly why. It comes down to masking children in schools. And I know this has been sort of a bit of a political football. The polling here in the United States shows most people are in favor of requiring masks for kids. I don't favor that. I think at least parents should have an opt-out opportunity. I think that might be important for development and health for certain kids in particular. I'm not fanatically against kids wearing masks in schools. I'd rather them be in school than not even if they're wearing masks, but I've sort of used that issue in my mind as a proxy for whether or not data really matters or whether or not people are just sort of going with what is decided from those on high. And and the reason I ask the question that way or frame it this way is largely lost, apparently in the decision-making process in a lot of places in this country, and certainly the narrative when we discuss it is the actual data and experience that we've seen across the pond in the UK and in the European Union and the recommendations from their experts based on quite a lot of data that they've seen in their schools where there are not masks required for kids with certain age cutoffs across a lot of different countries. And so we have this angry discussion here and we demonize politicians who even think about an opt out for parents as if what's happening in Europe doesn't exist at all. And I find that to be quite frustrating and galling at times. And I wonder what your reaction is to that critique.
7: Look, I, I understand your point, and I understand the frustration. And I think that this is a good example of you know what I was articulating about the lack of um, you know sort of disclosure about what the underlying science is. This is an example where I think that the balance of the data, such that it, there is data and there isn't a lot, probably suggest that there's some benefit, especially if you can get higher quality masks on kids in reducing transmission, but it's not strong and, and the effect may not be um, that robust. But my view is that in, in a setting of trying to get kids back in the classroom in, and into a, a setting where it's conducive to spread, I mean, classrooms are conducive to spread a congregate setting, a lot of kids close together, poor physical infrastructure in a lot of schools, poor air filtration, and trying to keep them safe. And trying to keep this virus from becoming epidemic in that setting. And I think that should be our goal. Get kids in school and keep them safe. You you start the school year with all the tools you have available. And that's going to include keeping kids in defined social pods, trying to use testing to keep them in the classroom and identify outbreaks, and using masks. Because on, on the margin, they may and they probably are providing some incremental benefit. And then make a judgment whether or not this Delta variant could be controlled in the school school setting, because I don't want to see this become epidemic in schools. I think that even though there's a lot of discussion around, well, kids fare much better than older, older individuals, and they certainly do. We're not seeing the extreme um, mortality and severe disease in children that we're seeing in older individuals. We're still seeing bad outcomes in kids, but we also don't understand the long-term consequences of this virus in children. And more and more we're seeing that there are some sequelae. So I don't want to mass infect the entire, you know, child population in the United States with COVID only to find out that there are some long-term consequences in a cohort of kids when we're two months away from having a vaccine available for children. So
1: so I that's actually that's- one of my next questions is, is the kids and the vaccines, doctor. And I only we only have a few minutes left together, so maybe we can just do maybe sort of rapid fire. Although I know it's it's tricky with some of these questions because uh, there's nuance Involved when it comes to children and vaccines. Number one, how are you feeling about the data and the clinical trials and uh, you know the rigor of those? And then, even if you're fully satisfied that these are safe and appropriate for kids, what are your thoughts on mandating COVID vaccines for children? For example, if they want to go to school, I know there are a lot of parents who are really wrestling with this and may not uh, may not it may not sit well with them if they are told that they must do something involving their children, especially in the very near future?
7: Yeah, so look, I feel confident in the data package. Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, is going to be filing for authorization for a vaccine in children ages 5 to 11. It's a a lower-dose vaccine than the vaccine available in in adults. Ultimately, FDA is going to make a judgment. In terms of the mandate, I can't foresee vaccines for children being mandated by the CDC and incorporated into childhood immunization schedule until these vaccines are fully approved and until more than one vaccine is available to children fully approved. So I suspect that that is not something that we would really be contemplating until the fall of 2021, so the fall winter season, school year, so next school year. So I don't think that there's going to be any immediate move to try to mandate these or incorporate them into childhood immunization schedule.
1: On boosters, we saw President Biden get his today. This is a conversation that I'm starting to have with my own parents. There was seemingly a pronouncement from the White House not long ago that they were gonna move to universal boosters for anyone who was fully vaccinated. And that was supposed to start last week. And then the FDA, your former organization, decided to recommend something quite different. In your estimation, based on what you have seen, who should be getting boosters now? And at what point, should we consider expanding that group?
7: Yeah, look, I think that the, what came out of the CDC um, was appropriate in terms of how they, rec- how they outlined who should get boosters. People over the age of 65 or in long-term care facilities very clearly should be getting boosters based on the data. I would argue that the data um, from Israel suggests that the age cutoff might be 60 or above or even 50 or above, and that was the discussion by CDC and the FDA people who are at heightened risk of contracting COVID because of an occupational exposure like healthcare workers and people who have underlying health conditions right down to age 18 that put them at more risk of a severe outcome. That's the group that, you know, CDC outlined and FDA largely um, outlined the same, the same cohort of people. I think the people who should very clearly go get boosters is the first group, people over the age of 65, where you're seeing not just rising instances of breakthrough infections, but you're also starting to see, at least in the Israeli data, um, rising uh, severe infections, people getting sick with COVID even after vaccination, where you're seeing declining immunity in older individuals who were vaccinated a long time ago. So anyone over the age of 65, I think, should have a discussion strongly consider with their doctor, strongly consider getting a booster based on the FDA and the CDC recommendation.
1: Dr. Gottlieb, one of the chapters in your book is called the mRNA breakthrough about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and the really scientific miracle that we were able to get these vaccines to market as quickly as we did. I think the speed is both amazing and has saved a lot of lives, but it has fueled some of the hesitancy among some people about getting, forget a booster shot, even their first shot. And we know that there's still – a chunk of the population that is unvaccinated, some of those people may be persuadable. Some of those people may think this all happened too quickly. It's maybe untested. I know the FDA just approved it, but they're still on the fence. If you were in an elevator with one of these folks and they asked you for just the quick pitch based on your expertise about why they should feel confident in the technology here, what would you tell them? I would tell them that the reason
7: we we were able to develop a vaccine very quickly is because we were right at the cusp of a technological inflection point where we were able to derive these vaccine constructs using fully synthetic tools. Um, we came up with the, the initial vaccine construct very quickly. The actual clinical development of the vaccine, the clinical testing, what matters for trying to demonstrate that the vaccines are safe and effective, were literally the largest clinical trials ever conducted in modern times. Um, and Moderna and Pfizer combined enrolled 90,000 people in the initial clinical trials. The only clinical trial I remember being almost as large was the trial for the rotavirus vaccine, the vaccine used in a pediatric population that had 60,000 patients in it. So this was the largest clinical development program ever undertaken. It enrolled quickly because people were motivated to get into these clinical trials, and it read out quickly because, unfortunately, there was so much COVID infection in the fall when these trials were being conducted that you had a lot of people getting sick in the placebo arm, so you were able to get a readout very quickly. But there was nothing short about the clinical development of these vaccines.
1: Last question, and I know it's a tough one, but I'll put you on the spot anyway. One of the things that has really concerned me is seeing, for example, colleges and universities where everyone is vaccinated or required to be, so the rates are 98%, 99% fully vaccinated, young, healthy people And yet all these mitigation requirements are still being imposed by administrations at these institutions, including mask mandates indoors, even outdoors in some cases. It just feels completely unsustainable. It looks like it's endless safetyism is what some people want, some very influential people want. And I wonder as you think about a realistic endgame, like an exit ramp here for the American people once this becomes an endemic virus where we have to kind of live with it and we can live with it. Broadly speaking, what would that and what should that look like? We have about a minute or two. Yeah, look, I think this will become
7: an endemic virus and we're going to need to learn to live uh, normally against the backdrop of coronavirus. There'll be some things that we do differently on the margins, um, but I think it's going to be at a point in time when we can vaccinate children so people will feel more comfortable because they know children are protected a lot of people who are vaccinated now aren't worried about getting sick themselves but bringing the infection back into their home with an asymptomatic um, case and I think it will be when prevalence starts to decline right now in certain parts of the country this Delta variant is a raging epidemic and and the prevalence is still very high you're still seeing a lot of hospitalizations and deaths I think when it comes down and when children can have the opportunity to be vaccinated hopefully culturally we'll start to transition to a, a paradigm where we feel more comfortable with some pervasive risk from this infection. There's certain things we do differently, but we're, tr- we're living more normally than we are right now, to your point.
1: Dr. Scott Gottlieb is an AEI fellow. He was the chief of the FDA under President Trump. His book is Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us, and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Dr. Gottlieb, we so appreciate your leadership and your clarity on a lot of these issues. I watch the YouTube videos of you on Face the Nation almost every single week. Uh, We so appreciate as well your willingness to come here on the show and talk about the book and talk about these thorny issues because they are, of course, immensely important. And we're grateful that you took the time for us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be
0: right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. Home stretch
1: on the Guy Benson Show, and if you're listening on the live broadcast, you might recognize that tune, 100 years, by Five for Fighting, a big hit a number of years ago, and last night I had the opportunity to go see Five for Fighting in concert in Northern Virginia. There was this cool venue that I'd never been to before, which was quite intimate, maybe 500 people, and there were a lot of Fox folks there, a lot. Because John Andrasic, who is the singer of Fiverr Fighting, he, I guess, is a Fox fan. He invited a number of people, and there was a little backstage gathering afterwards, and it was really cool. And I posted some of the videos, just snippets, from the concert on my Instagram story, at Guy P. And I also posted one video on Twitter, Guy P. Bence. And in fact, on Twitter, I... Put it up there, and I said it was fun time at the Five for Fighting concert. Thank you, John Andrasik, something like that. And I got a left winger responding, "Well, if he knew that you were there, he would have personally thrown you out of the venue." Fox News scum. And I simply replied, "He personally invited me." And a lot of people were like, "Oh, wrecked." And John Andrasic, in fact, retweeted that and said, "I can verify this guy and his husband." are on the permanent guest list at my concerts, which is pretty cool. And I know, Christine, you are just bursting at the seams to ask me questions about the experience because it was unique. It was unlike other concerts that I've been to. There was a song that he played that has not really been fully released, but it's a protest song about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was very powerful. We're actually working on getting John here on the show later on in the week, But I'm going to have to disappoint you, Christine. We don't have time. We went long with Dr. Gottlieb. We don't have time for Curious Christine today. But...
6: No time for cookie.
1: We can do it tomorrow. So get your questions in order. Maybe fine-tune them. And you can just bombard me with Curious Christine questions about the Five for Fighting experience and the members of Fox World that I hung out with and had a few beers with at the concert we will get to that tomorrow, in all likelihood, on the home stretch. And as I mentioned, you are efforting to get Five for Fighting, in fact, here on the show to talk about this new song in particular. But I did not want to allow this home stretch to pass without at least reveling for a moment in an outcome of a Yankees series from this season, which has been a pretty frustrating one from a Yankees fan's perspective. I know if you're not a Yankees fan, you're probably thinking, oh gosh, the heart bleeds, these poor Yankee fans with all their championships. I get it. When we whine, it probably brings a lot of people joy, but the team has been streaky at best. The bullpen is suspect. They may or may not make the playoffs. It's looking a little better than it was a few days ago, but you have to take memorable moments as they come and appreciate them, even if they don't have the talent or the makeup to go the distance this year. That's kind of my prediction. I don't think I'm way out on a limb. It's possible, but relatively far-fetched. To go into Fenway Park in Boston, belly of the beast of the rivalry on the opposite side, with a lot on the line, and to not just beat them, but to crush them with soul-crushing late-inning heroics, and to sweep the Boston Red Sox in Boston, where there were so many Yankee fans, in a tennis, I mean, it was loud. I tweeted, you could call it Yankees-Fanway Park, which was sort of my dig at them. I think the greatest moment of all was in the Saturday game. The Yankees were trailing in the eighth inning. They load the bases, and up comes Giancarlo Stanton, who is red-hot right now. He's got some strikeout issues. He, again, has underperformed at times. The fans have gotten on him. But this weekend... I mean, you might say he earned his pinstripes because he was a dominant force. And just for fun, for my own personal listening pleasure, I would like to share with you the home run call, not from the Yankees broadcast, but from the Red Sox broadcast on the TV side. And my favorite part is the color analyst just losing his mind at this gargantuan Stantonian blast that put the Yankees ahead with a grand slam in the eighth inning. They went on to win again last night with another monster shot by Stanton. Here's what it sounded like on Nesson. Cup 34.
0: Two down. Swing oh, oh fly ball. ball. He hits oh, this one wow. a mile. Oh, my God. Stanton with a grand slam. You almost don't know what to say.
1: I know what to say. I say, go Yankees. Sorry, Boston. I'd have more unparliamentary things to say about them, but this is a family program. And, Christine, I had to bring this up on the show, not only because our new teammate here at the program that we introduced last week, Dan, is a big Yankee fan, as am I. Christine, your husband, Bobby, the sainted Bobby, in fairness, he's a Red Sox fan, and he is kind of hard on you as a Yankee fan. He won't let you put your Derek Jeter stuff up in the house, on a scale of 1 to 10, how devastated was Bobby last night seeing his team swept at home?
6: You couldn't hear the the crying from the concert last
4: night?
1: <laughs> so he was an unhappy camper.
4: It, it was a sad, sad day in Good, our Good, as
1: it should be. I mean, and the thing is, we like Bobby. We side with him a lot of the time, but not on this one. Go Yanks. We'll see how these last few games go. Maybe the postseason's in the cards. Maybe not, but... What a series in Beantown. Back here tomorrow, we will talk about the Five for Fighting concert and much more on special reports panel coming up on the news channel. Please tune in for that, and then we'll be back here on the radio. Same time, same place for The Guy Benson Show.
5: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
1: Listen live or get the podcast now at Briankilmeadshow.com
0: The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.